Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of April 13th. A lot of stuff still in the news about coronavirus, and let's talk about some of the articles that are out there. So a couple of quick ones out of patientengagementit.com. First article is the AANP lauds broad scope of practice as boost for patient care access. There's five more states that have expanded the scope of practice laws in an effort that will help increase patient care access for coronavirus symptoms. This article, by the way, came out April 9th by Sarah Heath. And so that's now Kentucky, Louisiana, New York, New Jersey, and Wisconsin have expanded the scope of practice laws for nurse practitioners. That brings the total number of states that have relaxed the scope of practice laws for nurse practitioners up to 27. And here is a quote from someone from the AANP. We've been hearing from frontline nurse practitioners in states with outdated regulation that is often easier to volunteer in other states than to serve in their own communities. In fact, some are being recruited away from the states they currently reside and practice in to more inclusive practice environments, leaving patients at risk of little to no access of care. Well, that is silly, isn't it? So. Why do I mention this? Because as CMIOs, you may be seeing nurse practitioners in roles that maybe they were not previously allowed to do, and you have some security settings that might need to be adjusted. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head are those home health orders. Nurse practitioners always got held up on that. Now I imagine they'd be able to sign them. Diabetic shoes was another area where nurse practitioners, Medicare wouldn't let them sign. I think referral to like cardiac rehab is some very minor silly things. They can sign death certificates. They can write for all kinds of prescriptions, but they can't prescribe diabetic shoes, I guess. Another thing to consider while you're looking at security permissions, if your ambulatory providers are going to be coming to the hospital to assist, perhaps not managing the patients on the vent if they haven't done that in 15 years, but nevertheless, there's still patients who are coming in with syncope and other issues that they are probably very comfortable managing. Think about getting their security profile set up ahead of time so you're not in a mad dash scramble to get that done. It would be great if your incident command would give you a couple of days advance warning of when they think they're going to need surge providers, but that doesn't always happen. So good to be prepared on that one. Next, 74% of providers approve of open notes. And this is from patientengagementit.com by Sarah Heath again. This is March 31st, unrelated to COVID, by the way. Medical providers are largely accepting of open notes, the health data philosophy driving patient access to health information. Although they do acknowledge that the practice requires a little extra work, according to new data published in JAMA Network Open. While the open notes concept has previously garnered some critique, clinical notes are considered private remarks to the clinician, or they might confuse the patient or hamper the patient-provider relationship. Those concerns appear to be dissipating. This is the latest from open notes that participating providers like the practice of open notes and recommend it to colleagues. 
let's keep in mind that this study is done by the open notes people, so there may be some bias there, but here's the study. They surveyed over 1,600 clinicians who had shared clinical notes with at least one patient in the previous year, and 74% of providers said that they have favorable associations with the practice of open notes, while 61% would suggest their colleagues also provide patient access to clinical notes. 37% of them said offering patient access to clinical notes increased the amount of time they spent documenting the most common change was removing language that could be perceived as being critical of the patient. 18% of providers said their patient mentioned the notes during a later clinical encounter, while 14% said their patients had called the office with questions about clinical notes. And the Open Notes co-founder, Tom Delbanco, Delbanco is the co-senior author of the study, and he's out of Harvard and Beth Israel. He says, we've learned over the past 10 years that truly transparent communication brings enormous clinical benefits to patients. And yes, I think that there's an opportunity, never let a good crisis go to waste. And now might be a great time for you to move towards open notes if you haven't already done so. And most of us do this by releasing the notes through our portals. Volumes are down, providers probably are not freaking out too much about the, the notes. They have time to finesse them, at least the ambulatory notes. Inpatient may very well be quite busy, but I think as this article adds some support for, most people don't care. And when we went live with this in our organization, it was this whole bunch of noise beforehand and then crickets after. I haven't heard one thing since we went live with this. It's just a non-event. So I encourage you to do it if you haven't. Next article, Henry Ford offers COVID-19 care kits for disease self-management. This is same, same author, this is April 10th. Many patients tested positive for COVID-19 or displaying the telltale symptoms will recover though without much challenge. This came from the Henry Ford Health System. So they gave them some kits to take home. The kits included materials donated by the Detroit Pistons and Homedics, H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S. They're a manufacturer of certain at-home medical products. So the materials included a pulse oximeter to help measure blood oxygen levels, Gatorade to replenish lost electrolytes due to the disease, hand sanitizer, face masks to protect others from infections, and a symptoms log to help patients identify if their health begins to deteriorate. The kit has instructions for each of the items and a line to call should the patient need help from Henry Ford. The COVID kits are intended to be used in tandem with the Henry Ford Health Systems Telehealth Services, which they happen to have had in place before COVID, which is good. They have experience in that area. So what's my take on this? I think it's a great idea. The pulse oximeters, you can get wholesale for somewhere between 5 to $10 each. So it depends on how many people you plan on giving this out to. But if you figure a thousand perhaps over the next few months. That may be a very reasonable investment. The masks are gonna be incredibly cheap. The Gatorade, if you feel that's necessary, I don't know. Hand sanitizer would be pennies. And then the log book for patients to track their symptoms. All this seems incredibly cheap. The pulse ox is the only piece of electronics that would have some cost to it. And I know our colleagues at uh, Swedish, they were doing this from their emergency department. They also included a thermometer, which should also be incredibly cheap. So not a lot of cost to this, and it may just reassure some patients. I don't know 
how much the pulse ox is going to add to your clinical management. If your patient says they're really short of breath, you're bringing them in and you're gonna reassess them. Who cares what the pulse ox says? So it has its role. I think it's a great PR move and perhaps it will help some patients. So uh, take a look at it next. Healthcare IT News. This one is by Bill Sawicki, April 10th, titled, How Montefiore Uses Chatbots to Guide Patients in a COVID-19 Hotspot. So Montefiore is in New York City, and they were facing increasing volume of calls coming into doctor's offices, an increased demand for services, and worried patients coming into emergency rooms and hospitals. Chatbot technology was meant to be an offering to provide value to patients and direct them to the care they need. So here's the proposal. So staff liked an artificial intelligence-powered chatbot technology vendor called Hyro, H-Y-R-O, because it offered tools that would be customizable to the organization and could be deployed out of the box quickly. We had a system on our website in less than 48 hours. I wasn't familiar with the company. I went to their website and checked it out. That's hyro.ai backslash COVID-19. I have no association with them. I have never explored this product. First, I've ever heard of it. But... I can see that they have right on the front page there a free virtual assistant to support health enterprises and their patients. So it looks like they're looking to get their foot in the door probably by uh, giving this service away. And it, many hospitals are finding this to be valuable. I remember again, uh, Brett from Swedish, the CMIO there, told us that they have a chatbot that was getting tons of hits, hundreds of thousands of hits, I believe, over the time since they've instituted it. So there are other vendors, by the way, and they list a bunch of them here called Care Sherpa, Conversa Health, Element Blue, uh, Orbita is the only one on this list that I recognize, but there, there are others. Montefiore Health System added the COVID-19 assistant to its website, HTML code, using a JavaScript snippet that was provided by Hero. During the first week of deployment, they're witnessing hundreds of daily conversations within the COVID-19 screening tool and chat solution. Chatbots are being used in many industries, such as banking and hospitality. The adoption within healthcare is not as rampant as other industries, but there are many use cases. So I think it's worth looking at if you are getting overwhelmed. We have a call center set up. We're monitoring the volume. It has not been overwhelming right now, but obviously this thing is doing different levels of damage in different parts of the country and your system may be under some pressure. It's worth checking in with your communications people, seeing how often are the phones ringing, how often are people hanging up because they couldn't get their questions answered in time, or how often did you not have resources to provide them the right answers, and then consider that chatbot technology. It does not sound difficult to deploy here. You're looking at a solution that essentially requires your web developer to drop in a Java snippet, and then you're up and running. Really shouldn't take very long at all. Next is from Mike Milliard, April 10th, Healthcare IT News. CMS relaxes more rules around telehealth, allowing care across state lines. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has temporarily suspended several regulations to enable hospitals, clinics, and other providers to boost their frontline medical staff during the coronavirus pandemic. Potentially one of the most significant changes CMS is now allowing doctors to care for patients at rural hospitals across state lines via phone, radio, or online communication without having to be physically present. 
The agency is also now allowing nurse practitioners to perform some medical exams on Medicare patients at skilled nursing facilities and occupational therapists to perform initial assessments on certain homebound patients. So most of us have known that the telehealth rules have been relaxing. I was, I was aware that if you needed to perform telehealth to a patient's home and you're in your office and it happens to be across the state line, happens to us quite a bit here on the peninsula in Maryland, is there's patients in both Virginia and Delaware that we can easily reach out to. And now we can cross that state line without too much difficulty. I was not aware that that also applies to going through the walls of the hospital. Now, I imagine there's some credentialing things that has to happen, but if there is a rural hospital out there that doesn't have a critical care intensivist and just has some nurse practitioners or physician assistants, well, now they can bring in virtually some higher level care specialists that they may not otherwise have access to. So I think this is another great example of the government getting the regulations out of the way, let the healthcare system do what it needs to do. We all have our fingers crossed that this, some of this stuff sticks on the other side of this crisis. I think part of this is showing the world about how silly some of our things are and how we can function without them. Okay, next, this one's out of histalk2.com. There's an article in here about how Apple and Google are using their mobile devices with an API that uses Bluetooth to perform coronavirus contact tracing to help detect outbreaks. So here's how it works. The companies are going to be releasing APIs next month that create interoperability between the Android and the iOS devices using apps from public health authorities. Following afterward will be the release of full contact tracing platforms. So the use in the scenario is that user one is carrying their phone anytime they're in public and they leave the app running. User one is assigned an anonymous, frequently changed identifier beacon. And user one now has close contact with user two, who is also carrying their phone and running the app. Now, user one tests positive for COVID-19. They manually enter their results into the app and user one gives their phone permission to upload a 14 day history of the identifier beacons with which they have had close proximity. User 2's phone regularly downloads that a list of identifier beacons from contacts who have tested positive. User 2's phone alerts them that they've been exposed to someone who tested positive and tells them what they should do. So obvious weak points. Article goes on to say that the app has to be left running and the user has to have their phone with them for this to be effective. I don't think that's a tremendous burden. I think that's most of us these days anyway. But each person who tests positive has to remember to enter their test results. You're relying on the patient here. Great, I think there'll be some low compliance with that. Both contacts have to leave the app running. There's currently low adoption as has been reported. The odds of detecting a given exposure are pretty slim because you have to have both people with this thing going on and the public health systems have to participate in this. So you gotta get them engaged and they don't always move very quickly but they would be the ones who would be monitoring the data and helping promote the app. And the biggest problem is that the U.S. just can't do the testing that we need to do. So we've got patients walking around who are positive. We don't know about it. And no matter what app you have, it's not going to help. And that's the biggest problem that we have got to get over. We've got to get the testing done. I know on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, 
we are able to do testing for those who are really sick, but we certainly are not testing those who have been exposed, trying to identify other contacts that are asymptomatic but spreading this. Those resources do not exist here. And I know that's in many parts of America. So what's my take on this as a CMIO? I personally would just sit back and watch this one. I don't know that I'd be jumping to spend my time and energy on that. Next in here, I see someone else complaining that they did not get refunded for their hotel money for their HIMSS 2020 conference. And it just makes me feel good that I'm not alone. Moving on. Health technologies that the pandemic has made or will make mainstream. So they have a list of 29 things. I'm not going to read you all 29. Some of them are obvious. Telehealth. 3D printing of medical supplies. That's kind of cool. Chatbots. We've talked about that. Remote patient monitoring and clinician backup. I'm hesitant on this. I don't know how much value it's, it's delivering, but it's yes, it is becoming more mainstream. I'll give them that. Video conferencing and team collaboration platforms, yes. Patient engagement for monitoring patients who are recovering at home who can be discharged to lower acuity settings. So hopefully more patients are using the portals or other patient engagement tools. That's a good thing that could come out of this patient check-in and waiting room avoidance, public health reporting and data aggregation. I think this has been a great exercise in how do we move data around this country as quickly as possible. We're not prepared. We need to get the interoperability. We need to get the data standards done. Maybe this will push our health system to do this right. A couple of other things on the list here, and these are lower down on the list, but uh, number 15 is syndromic surveillance. We did this in my last health system where we developed analytics that would be monitoring the primary care offices for the codes that were dropped at the end of the day where it looked like a viral upper respiratory infection. And we called it what's going around. And we could see what was going around. And we knew when we saw over a certain volume that we knew we were on, we were on our curve of upswing for influenza. And you could throw in some laboratory values in there as well to help with, with that because the rapid testing's done uh, was fairly frequently in that previous system. So you do have to have enough geographic spread from your primary care clinics to really make this useful, but absolutely we could be doing this. That was being done two years ago, and I am positive that systems that have that in place were able to see the wave coming, which just gives you the time, the, the, the chance to get your staffing right, to get your supplies, whatever it's going to be. The syndromic surveillance, I think, is very important. Virtual mental health services, this has been something we should be doing anyway. Forget about the crisis. And it's still hard to execute on this one, just in terms of getting the providers in place. And finally, ordering and delivery apps for food, supplies, and prescriptions. So we are seeing more patient-centric healthcare. Hopefully, health systems are now incorporating some of these things into their apps so that patients can make sure they're getting all of what they need. It's not just that they need office visits and being able to schedule. They need to be able to get to facilities to get prescriptions and they need basic food and other activities of daily living tools that just help keep them going. Final article here, Mayo Clinic says that a COVID triggered freeze on elective surgeries will trigger a $3 billion loss this year. 
forcing it to implement pay cuts and furloughs for salaried employees, freeze hiring, lay off contract employees, and stop some construction. Just think about that. That's Mayo Clinic, which has huge amounts of money coming in from just donations. And a $3 billion loss, though, from the elective surgeries is obviously huge. But that's Mayo Clinic that's going to be doing pay cuts and furloughs. That should open your eyes. As CMIOs, I don't know if you had other projects planned for later in the year, optimization things. I would anticipate a lot of stuff's going to get cut. Hang on, try to ride through it. Focus your informatics knowledge and analytics knowledge on driving value for the health system. You always want to show as a CMIO that you are delivering value, that there is a return on the investment for your informatics activities. And I think we can wrap it up there for this week. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.